Carl. It's showtime. We'll talk to our guest, Ellie Schwetti, and Jacob, how do you say his name, Lynn? Juntinen. From Contraband Theater's production of See You in a Minute. Around minute 25, we'll talk to Gail Gallagher and Wyatt Weed about their new film, Dark at the Top of the Stairs, which is going to have its premiere at the High Point. And then we'll wrap it up with Beetlejuice at the Fabulous Fox. Haven't you seen I, enough plays, Lynn? No, <laughs> I, I've got more to go. More to go. No, how many? Okay, so how many have you seen in the last, let's say, 10 days? I, I uh, haven't counted those yet, but I would say like <laughs> five. Five. Right. And how many left do you have? I'm only seeing three this weekend. Are from, oh, from oh now my. to um, Sunday, only seeing three. Well, I could see more, but I. I'm... There are a lot of shows yeah. opening this weekend. <laughs> I mean, this whole month, it's like every theater company decided they better put on a play. Yeah. So we're hoping that they all come and see ours. Right. I hope so too. Uh, that is Ellie Sweaty. And the reason she is on today is because she's directing the Contraband Theater's original world premiere of See You in a Minute. And we have her and the playwrights. J- and Jacob, introduce Juntinen. how you like to. Yeah, Juntinen. yeah. Jacob Juntinen. How do you like your name to be actually pronounced correctly? <laughs> Well, it's a Finnish name, and so actually correctly would be Juntanen, but ah. when my grand great-grandparents came, it became Juntanen. So here we are. Somebody at Ellis Island said, eh, that's too hard to say. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very a nice name, particularly in a byline or on a on a play bill or on a cover, because yes. it's it's you know, it does, it does do that job. There's so, some gravitas there. Yes. So I read the plot of this play that opens tonight, October 11th at the chapel. And the chapel is a lovely place to see a uh, a play because the space is all, well, when Ellie's involved or Minden Company's involved or something, it's always intriguing how you perceive that space. You yeah. never go into a production with the same format ever. Yeah, it's uh, the space itself is nice because of that. So when you walk in, it is an old, you know, chapel at a at a church. And so, you know, you think there's like sort of a proscenium style situation with like a raised end stage and you can, you know, have audience on the floor. But we've kind of figured out a way to turn it into a bit of a black box where audience can be set up in lots of different configurations. So um, we've had it in the round before. We've had sort of three sides of the audience. We've had, and in this case, we're actually putting the audience on what typically would be the stage and the actors and our set is where we would, where you would think that's like seating would be. Um, we've kind of flip-flopped them um, for a few different reasons. It's kind of working very well for us. But um, yeah, we kind of love this configuration. The audience is kind of raised up and they kind of get this lovely overall view of um, of our set and our actors and this great play. 
I am intrigued when I read the when I read the plot of this, Jacob, because because it takes place. It's a very modern contemporary story. So I want to uh, I want you to tell the audience what it's about and also explain how you got the idea for this. Sure, I'd be happy to. So the play uh, See You in a Minute is set in 2041. There is a pandemic um, and a young woman, um, Catherine, has to come back to St. Louis to take care of her family from her great job in New York. And her boss in New York wants her back. Um, so that's one of the conflicts. But more importantly, there's a lot of intergenerational conflict and Catherine being back, you know, parents wanting to treat her like a child, her wanting to be treated like an adult. And there's also a lot of unresolved trauma from the 2020 pandemic when Catherine was five um, that perhaps she hasn't completely worked through, that perhaps her parents have not dealt with her. Um, and so a lot of the play is actually quite funny, despite what I just said, <laughs> all of that. Um, there's puppets, uh, there's all sorts of play and um, and sandwiches. Sandwiches are an important <laughs> part. So you need to come see why sandwiches are so important and crucial. And I got this idea um, after our most recent pandemic, um, if after is the right tense, but during 2020, um, I spent a lot of time caring for my five-year-old daughter. Um, and during that time, like many people was, you know, struggling to just get through. Um, so was not able to write anything productively. Um, but the next summer in 2021, I was able to look back, um, look back on some of these feelings and some are great feelings, you know, having a summer just with my daughter because my work was pretty much shut down. Um, you know, there's a lot of joy in that. Um, and so in 2021, trying to come up with a way to write about both the joy and the fear um, that that came out of that that summer. And I said it in 2041 because I wanted to be able to to stray from the facts of 2020, right? Like I didn't want to get into some of the politics that that surrounded the pandemic. I wanted to be able to play with, um, with, with some of the technology that we might have in 20 years. Um, so do we finally have flying cars? We don't have flying cars, but we do have smart cities, which is oh. fun. Yeah. That's been a really fun part of, uh, working on this play honestly has been, um, these little, uh, yes, these little nuggets that we have. So this this idea of smart cities um, and uh, just other other sort of elements of future American history that are um, uh, kind of seeded into the play. It's not um, we don't kind of go into like huge amounts of what has happened to America in the next, you know, 20 years from now. But we have enough little nuggets that it's like, oh, that's fascinating. That's interesting. How could that come to be? Um, and so that's been a really sort of like nice, nice part of this thinking about uh, our future history. 
That's good. I like that uh, it's reflection of uh, what's going on in the world in terms of the pandemics, because I don't think we're done. I don't think anybody thinks we're done. I just had COVID again, September 2nd, and that was a bad variant. Ooh, that's, you know, and so, so I like that you, you said it in familiar times now, because I think we're all trying to process, what did we just go through? What, did, yeah. what, what did we just happen? You know, and then also in terms of reality, like dealing with your family, dealing with work, dealing with, uh, everything has changed now. And, yeah. and, you know, you don't want it to change, but it has. So I like that you do that. Now, this isn't your first play. No, no. This, but, but <laughs> how did, how did this contraband theater come about? Because oh, you're relatively sure. new here. It is. So this is contraband's um, first production of this scale in St. Louis. Um, we did produce one of my students' plays uh, from, from Southern Illinois University Carbondale at the St. Louis Fringe a few years back. But this is the first of my play um, that we've produced here and certainly the biggest scale. Contraband Theater came about in 2016 in Carbondale when I wanted to produce a different one of my plays. And I'd done, a, I'd lived for 10 years in Chicago and I had started a nonprofit theater as the managing director and playwright. And I found that a lot of, um, a lot of working with the board, a, a lot of uh, the sort of fundraising that goes with that nonprofit um, sometimes inhibited the art or at least um, would overtake the art. You'd spend more time, you know, fundraising than actually making something. And so in 2016, I just wanted to make something. And so I started Contraband Theater, which was me. And um, I found for this play called Half Taken Away, an abandoned church. So I guess I only produce in churches. <laughs> um, this one was an abandoned church about two or three miles outside of Carbondale. And we put up some, some theater, uh, lighting trees. So the church just glowed at night. Like the light just oh. like shined out into the cornfields and people drove out and, um, it was not at all a theater. And so we had a one row of seating and a rectangle. The actors played in the middle with audience on all sides. I think it sat about 30. It was a really really intimate experience you were only a few feet from the actors and it was beautiful and it was exactly what I wanted it to be and I was really happy with my collaborators um, but I was happy that it was it was what I wanted it to be and so contraband has been based on this idea of trying different models of producing um, to make it more artist-centric and I think this production, while it has lots of contributors like Ellie, obviously, and 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 others, I think it has been very artist centric, um, and and less business centric. And another thing I'll just say is that one of the other ways Contraband is trying to be more artist centric is all of our tickets for this production are pay what you wish. So you can come for zero dollars if you wish, or you can come for thirty dollars if you feel like given us more and 15 is sort of the suggested, but I really, again, wanted to make sure that, you know, business wasn't the key here. Instead, the key is making this art and making it accessible. Well, Jacob, you mentioned collaboration. How did you bring Ellie on to direct? 
I've always had a director. Um, I, I do not think visually, alas. And so um, I, I would always like to have a director by my side um, to do that work for me. Um, since I can't. And so Ellie is one of my favorite directors in St. Louis. I've seen a lot of her work over the years. Um, you know, most recently, I think, you know, seeing the Christians um, and seeing in another church in another <laughs> church. And then I see, apparently only do church the church plays too. Right. And then seeing every brilliant thing. I just, in particular, those two really spoke to me about some of the aesthetics um, that I think have uh, not have taken away that see you in a minute has. Um, and so um, I actually feel very lucky and fortunate that Ellie was uh, willing to come on board and direct this. That's all very yeah. kind. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, so Jacob, Jacob had gotten in touch with me um, uh, and we just were kind of sitting down and talking about, uh, how people produce, like what are sort of things that people do to produce in St. Louis. And I kind of talked to him about my experience producing for SATE um, and some of the the models that we set up. And again, I think SATE is, tries to be very artist centric too. So um, in that way, I think contraband and, 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 you know, our aesthetic really kind of vibe together. Um, and then after we kind of had that meeting of just like, what do, you know, what are, what are people doing in St. Louis to produce theater? Then later he approached and asked me if I wanted to direct the play. And it was uh, very, uh, very, a, a very generous offer for him to ask. And I felt very happy to accept and um, make, make it work because it really has been such a lovely process. And uh, the script is lovely. Um, a really great story, lots of joyfulness. And then we've also been able to get some really amazing um, actors and other uh, visual collaborators on the on the piece. So that's been great. Well, who's in your cast? We have um, Ricky Franklin, um, most recently seen in Twelfth Night at uh, Shakespeare Festival. Um, we have Joe Garner who was um, in my production of The Christians and also works a lot with Cherokee Street Theater. Um, we have the RFT's tour de force, Kelly Howe, um, most recently in her amazing cabarets with uh, Midnight Theater over at the Blue Strawberry. And uh, we have Joshua Mayfield, who... Um, Fantastic actor. He was in Safe's most recent production, um, this palpable growth play. And he was also recently in um, uh, Feminine Energy with Mustard Seed. So those four actors are, are our cast and uh, they're just incredible. It's such an easy job directing when you have four really stellar actors who are thinking and making great choices and really collaborative and form a really tight ensemble pretty quickly. Yeah, always interesting. Now, uh, I think Josh played uh, Snug. Was he Snug? He, he Tom Snout. Yeah. Snout. Okay. Yeah. I yeah, knew the lion. Then... He was acting like a lion. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was our very fastidious. He uh, Demetrius later. He played the wall, and then he plays Demetrius, our very little fastidious tailor type. He's quite funny and uh, brings a lot of that humor. I think he's just like a naturally 
sort of deadpan humor guy. And he brings a lot of that into this show as well, uh, which is my favorite kind of humor. And it just cracks me up. Which which is good. And Carl, uh, <laughs> we saw Twelfth Night together. So we yes, remember we Ricky Franklin in uh, her role as... I am forgetting. I think it was Toby. Uh, it was Toby. Toby. Yeah. Toby Belt. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they was... changed it from male to female. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. she was fantastic. I talked to her after the show, and <laughs> and I told her that she was my favorite thing in the show. And the other cast members were standing by her and said, <laughs> "I said I, I don't mean to offend you guys." She's like, "Oh no, we're not offended. She's fantastic." <laughs> yeah, she sure is. And I think we talked to her at Tower Grove after. Uh, the the nine the merry wives yes mm. nice we did we did speaking of yeah uh the what i like about your cast is that they're willing to go to different places because joe garner he's mm-hmm. only been in town for back in town for a couple of years because he and i talked he's from the east side too carl so so mm-hmm. um we, we talk, because, but he's just become more known, you know, like the first thing yeah. I saw him in was Midnight Company's thing about the and extraterrestrials. And he just is electric on stage. He, he really he, is. I just saw him at Humans of St. Louis at Fringe. Oh. And he just he just commands the stage. He just takes it over. Yeah, what's really great about Joe is, um, as Jacob mentioned, there's this lovely element of puppetry in in the show. Oh, um, he's a puppet, he's a and, puppet yes, guy. Yeah, he worked he worked for like a decade or something, um, specifically in puppet theater. Uh, so, just kind of his level of knowledge and and expertise in, and he just, I mean, he truly does bring these puppets alive. Like I kind of find myself in those moments in the play. I forget that there's like people. <laughs> hey, there's a puppet here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just watching their puppets because uh, uh, the scenes are between Joe and uh, and Ricky, um, the dad, uh, Joseph, and uh, the character, his daughter, Catherine. And I just I'm watching these lovely puppets and uh, and the play that they have. And it's it's been fantastic. So, yeah, that level of sort of electricity and play that Joe brings uh, with Ricky in those scenes is just fantastic well very well, very 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 good this is exciting i'm excited about it and it's nice to see i think this year if i am not mistaken i have seen more original plays mm-hmm. on local stages than i have in in other years it seems like we have an explosion of not only original work but really good original work mm-hmm yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's something that's thanks in part to um, um, festivals like the Afroben Festival that SAIT does, um, like the Confluence Festival at the Shakespeare Festival, um, others as well. Um, but I think there's a lot of homegrown talent, you know, to be nurtured here in St. Louis of playwrights. Um, and I, I hope Contraband will continue to produce local playwrights. Um, not just me. Um, and, you know, I hope that one of the goals I have, you know, teaching at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and, you know, making the national rounds as as in that role is trying to convince people, you know, St. Louis is, is a good cost of living. There's a good theater scene, you know, there's opportunity to have your works produced. And of course, there are other great theater towns all over. 
Um, but I think St. Louis has some real perks to it, um, particularly, again, um, that there are so many folks here willing um, to, to create new work. Well, I have to know who wrote the play synopsis. Oh, probably me. <laughs> well, because every time I see it, I've seen it a couple of times now. It It's meant to be read quickly because it's written like dialogue. Oh, okay, yeah. So Catherine, Catherine has left New York City and returned to her childhood home in St. Louis to take care of her parents during the pandemic. And, yeah. and you, you, you yeah. can't just read it. It's got it. It's like a hurried conversation. So That's I true. applaud you that. Thanks. Um, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due for that. I I went to, uh, well, virtually went to a workshop at the Playwright Center in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, that was for uh, Minnesota. You got to say Minnesota. it right. Um, then, you know, it's for playwrights, for for bios, for synopses, for, for all of that sort of thing. And, you know, I thought that workshop did a really great job um, suggesting that you try to get whether it's your play or yourself you know when you're writing your bio trying to get that tone that that captures the play and so you know i could i could rattle off a boring synopsis of the play like i think i did at the at the top of this uh podcast <laughs> but you know the the one i wrote i think does capture the the tone it is fast it is um conversational playful. it is playful and conversational mm -hmm. um you know, I think the longer synopsis, um, which I don't know which ones you've seen, but the longer synopsis says um, something about, you know, Catherine's gone home for a pandemic. No, wait, not the one you're thinking of. This is 2041, <laughs> you know, and um, I think the play does have that sort of humor throughout it. Well, the well, show is Wednesday through Saturday for the next three weeks. You can get tickets at Eventbrite or I want you to go to Contraband Theater re.org spelled the correct way contrabandtheater.org and you can click and find tickets and dates that work for you right yeah. well real quick before we talk to our filmmakers wyatt weed and gail gallagher uh they have a spooky movie coming out haunted a haunted ghost story um jacob i because you are new you aren't really new new to st louis theater scene but I know that you helped a mentor, a playwright who brought feminine energy to the Mustard Seed Theater this spring. Yeah. And that's when I began noticing your name around. So uh, you, where'd you, where, uh, where did you grow up and why did you want to uh, uh, oh. pursue playwriting? Sure. So I grew up in California and after dropping out of high school, I moved up to Portland, Oregon for the 90s because that's where you should be in the 90s. And I was and eventually went to community college there in Portland um, and was lucky enough to have a really great playwriting teacher um, in the English department at that community college who sort of got me on the path. And then even more luckily, Edward Albee came and spoke at that community college and mentioned that he taught um, playwriting at the University of Houston. Um, and the short version is I sent him a play and he invited me out to the University of Houston. I worked with him for a semester and sent him another play um, that was a one act and he produced it with five other one acts at Stages Repertory in Houston in 1998. And that was my first production. And, and here we are now. Oh, wow. 25 years later. Yeah. Wow. 
that's a good name drop. That's yeah, impressive. It was good, right? Yeah, that's an, that's an that's an impressive. Well, you asked. I, I wasn't going to name drop if you didn't ask. No, so. but no, that's good. I love finding these things out because, uh, uh, as Carl would tell you, because um, I went to my instant theater cred is that I went to college at Illinois State University with the founders of Steppenwolf Theater. Oh, yeah, so and, and, my, so yeah he, and she loves to mention it every single time. <laughs> yes. Well, I didn't. Well, I know John Lori Metcalf. Yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah, well, John Malkovich turned around in class and stared at me, so, okay. <laughs> Smell you, Nancy Drew. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it's been a delight <laughs> to get to know you, Jacob, because I've been Thank talking you. to Tina, who's been talking oh, yeah. to you, and yeah. then Ellie, always a pleasure. And I always yes, look forward you. to seeing what you're up to because it's fun. Even though we have seven plays in two weeks, you I can still, do it. I, I enjoy oh, she's it. Looking, she's Larry. looking forward to this one. <laughs> I am. Great. Good. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Thanks for the conversation, guys. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Hi, Gail. Hi, Wyatt. I haven't seen Hi. you in a while, Hi. but you've been hey, busy. Hi. Can you hear us okay? Are we coming yeah, through? Yeah, you sound fantastic. I Excellent. love your Pink Floyd in the background. You know, we're living in a 130-year-old house in Alton, which is part of how the movie happened. But when we moved in, the house has a legitimate firewall, like an old-fashioned firewall that separates the two sides of the house. So if one side burns, the other side doesn't. And when we first saw this attic... How convenient. I told Gail, I know exactly what I'm going to do with that wall. I'm going to paint it white and I'm going to paint the wall on it because it's the wall. It is. So, well, it's a pleasure to ha have you. Uh, I was unfamiliar with your new project till you posted it on sure. social media and said you're having a red carpet premiere at the High Point Theater yes. Yes. on October yes. 21st. And I was like, well, I have to get a ticket for that. And <laughs> so uh, here we are. And I, um, was just going to ask, it's so funny that you brought up living in Alton because Wyatt, the first question I was going to ask you was, did Alton have something to do with your choice of material? Well, yeah, it, it was interesting because Gail and I had lived together. We're, we're married. We're a filmmaker couple. Um, we'd lived together on main street in St. Charles for, she'd been there 25 years. I was there with her for 10 of it. Um, we had to get out of St. Charles. St. Charles was insanity. So in October of 2020, we were looking around to get out of St. Charles and find a nice space. Um, and Gail said, let's go look at a house in Alton. And I was like, are you insane? Who wants to live in Alton? We came up here. It was beautiful. We're in a little suburb near a park. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's inexpensive, but it's a 130 year old home. Mm -hmm. And when we initially moved in, you know, Alton's got a notorious haunted reputation. Oh, and when haunted we moved city in, in America. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, none of the door, all the doors would close on their own. Or open on their own. Or open on their own. There were weird <laughs> banging noises in the night. There were creatures outside. If you've never heard an owl kill and eat something smaller than it at like two o'clock in the morning... You've not you've not heard horror until you've heard an owl kill something. It's a horrifying you. sound, and it's just really disturbing when you're in a new space and you don't know the sounds. Then, so so all these creepy, crazy things were happening, and um, 
when we decided to make a film during the COVID lockdown, when we finally looked at each other and said, I'm bored, nobody's doing anything, let's make a film. The immediate inspiration was this house, all the things that had transpired. It just, it ins like the first thing we thought of was let's do a haunted house film and let's shoot it in this house in Alton. And then by filming it in the house that we're living in, we had the control over the location. It wasn't like we had the location for one week and then we had to be out. We could take as long as we needed to make this film. And with it being literally just the two of us doing it, we estimated that it would take us a lot longer than if we had a crew working with us. Yeah. 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 So two years, you've spent the last two years. So you had to deal with all the different pandemic things and, uh, and all that. Well, why did, I didn't know you were an actor. He's in 99% like of that all the a... scenes. I'm sorry. You're in 99% of all the scenes. 99% of all the scenes. He steals uh, all the scenes. I, I steal the scenes from myself occasionally too. <laughs> um, you know, what's funny is way back when, and we're talking 1988, I actually went out to Los Angeles initially. I spent about 20 years in LA working in the industry out there. And when I initially went to LA, I went with the idea of being an actor. Now I always loved filmmaking and I always loved the idea of directing and very naively, I thought, well, I'll act my way into directing, you know, like Robert Redford or Warren Beatty, you know, those guys. Um, and then I got to L.A. and I realized it's tough enough just to survive in L.A. It's <laughs> tough enough to do anything in L.A., let alone act your way into directing. So directing took a backseat. I'm sorry, acting took a backseat for a long time. But once I came back to the Midwest and there was less financial pressure and we were doing more of our own productions, you know, as a writer, producer, director, married to a writer, producer, director, I can cast myself in stuff now. So hey. the audition process is much you less- went the, You went it backwards. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And you know, acting is a very different thing now. Um, you've probably spoken with other actors who've talked about it. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was just trying to look good and be competent on camera. As a, an adult with some life experience now, I come at it from a very different place. And but you're still pretty. About, I've lived competent I've, on camera is your number one priority. Yeah. I well, you know, number one or two. But no, I've lived life now. I've I've had a child. I've been married and divorced. Um, you know, family members have died. Uh I've I've lost things and I've gained things. And so my my perspective on acting is very different. I'm coming to it with a little bit of seasoning now as opposed to pretending because I'm young and nothing's happened to me. So that makes a difference. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I tell I have I a lot of respect for young people who are good on camera because Either they've had a rough early life and they've experienced stuff they shouldn't have, or they're just really good at playing make-believe. Um, and and I, I do truly believe that make-believe is 90% of it, but I do think that life experience um, can bring a lot to the table. Well, sure, because then you're able to draw yeah. on your experience to make-believe something right. is happening. And there's weird things in Dark at the Top of the Stairs. There are things that have to do with family members and death and I've experienced all of those things, not like exactly what's in the film, but there was enough reality to what we wrote that I was able to bring some emotion to some of the scenes because, you know, 
I did lose a brother. I lost a brother 20 years ago, but I lost a brother. And, you know, there was a family member who did commit suicide. It wasn't my father and I'm not the one who found him, but there was stuff to draw on that was very emotional and very personal. So sometimes it wasn't a very long journey to get from, you know, who I am to emotional and the character in the scene, because we were drawing on real things that happened. So, and you're by yourself a lot of the film by myself a lot in the film. Um, so the idea, um, bless Gail's heart. Um, cause she's so game for anything. COVID hit. We moved all these projects shut down. We were working on creative projects. I was acting in other projects. We had professional video shoots we were doing and all that stuff went away. And about spring of 2021, we were both really frustrated and just not doing anything creative. And one day I turned to Gail and I said, why don't you and I make a movie? And Gail, like I said, bless her heart, turned to me and went, that sounds like a blast. What are we going to do? I said, let's make a ghost story. Right. Well, okay, you know. How do we do it? And I'm like, Gail, I'll act in it. You shoot it. We'll write it and, you know, produce it together. And we'll make a ghost story. And she said, cool. I said, cool. This will either end in a feature film or a divorce. So, so, so hey, far we're still together. We're still together. Yeah. So, yeah. well, they say, well, write what yeah. you know. So, yeah. Well, and this was a challenge for me because I was never really a camera person. I mean, I had watched Wyatt for years, but so this was a learning experience for me, how to, how to be a, a cinematographer. And and she did a great job. Um, but initially, the, the, the full intention was to just keep it me and just keep it in the house. And the bulk of the film was shot from August of 2021 through October of 2021. But then, as indie filmmakers have to do, we have to stop and get real paying gigs. So then through the fall of 20, 2021 and through the spring and summer of 2022, we did paying gigs. Then we were able to come back to the movie and finish up what was done. So probably 90% of the film was done. It was all the stuff of me in the house. But we decided we could open it up a little bit. And by then, the COVID restrictions had lifted enough that people felt comfortable coming back out and playing again. So we had always had a scene with a doctor's office where my character gets a grim diagnosis but we opened it up and we added the doctor's office scene. We put in a photo studio scene to show my character as a photographer and what he does for a career. Um, and so there's, there's a little more scope to the film. We were able to open it up a little bit. But one of our goals was, of course, the film is going to be small. It's going to be small in scale, small in size. But we didn't want it to feel like it was just two people in a house with a camcorder. We wanted to do everything that you would do for a normal film in terms of lighting, effects, camera work. Like it was okay with us that it was small scale, but we didn't want people to watch it and feel like it wasn't a real film. So we know how to make real films. The question was just, how do we bring the real film mentality and the production value to something that was micro budget and literally just the two of us? And so- And we figured out that when it is just the two of us, it is a lot more work than when you've got extra hands and when you've got PAs that you can have go do the running. So we were filming some scenes up here in the attic 
and we needed a sandbag, which of course is in the basement. So it's like, all right, draw straws. Which one of us is going to go run down three flights of stairs and carry a couple of heavy sandbags all the way back up? And you know, and then you get a pause. Yeah, for that we'll shoot this scene tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did some of that too. There'd be times that we're like, all right, well, let's let's do these four scenes today, and we would get through, you know, two and a half, and we're like, you know, let's come back and finish that tomorrow. I'm done. Yeah, logistics. <laughs> well, I will we say, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, one of the things we had the flexibility of as because it was our location, we always had access to it. We always had access to the lead actor. There were times when, you know, we'd start to work towards something and go, you know, this isn't working. This doesn't look the way I wanted it to. This doesn't feel right. Well, let's try it like this. Let's light it like this. Well, let's move the scene over here and shoot it here instead. And we'd get a couple hours into the day and go, okay, this is going to work better, but we've kind of lost the light. So are you free tomorrow afternoon? So that, so we could work on stuff. We weren't, like she said, we're not locked into, you have to shoot at the diner and you have to be done by eight o'clock and you can never come back. It was like, you know, maybe we'll get it done today. Maybe we'll get it done tomorrow. I mean, we were we were disciplined and we worked steadily and worked hard, but we didn't have that hammer blow you know, of the hard deadlines that most people have to face. Like you you have to shoot 10 scenes, you have to shoot them in 18 hours, and then you have to get out. We we luckily weren't facing that in most situations. You know, it also gave us the freedom to really polish some scenes. So like there was some camera moves that we were trying to do, in particular going up the staircase. And we built this we we built this rig that um would allow the camera to rest on the handrail for the staircase. And then using literally such rudimentary tools, we basically had a pulley system with a rope on it. And we were pulling the camera up the railing as his hand is going up the railing. And we shot it and we're like, well, that that's okay. And then once Wyatt got it onto the system and started editing it, he's like, mm, we can do better. And so we went back and we re-rigged and we've made some modifications to the rig and we tried it again. And then we tried it a third time a couple of days later. And the hand it, on the railing. Was we, it four? We shot four times, four separate times we shot the hand on the railing. Um, this film has a, you may not think initially, and when you see the film, you may not feel this. I feel a kinship to the Evil Dead films. Not necessarily the hard style of the Evil Dead films, but that sort of hand-done style. Like I know on Evil Dead, they would come up with crazy ideas and they'd like get a two by four and mount the camera in the center of the two by four and a guy would get on either end of the two by four and they'd go running through the woods. Or, you know, they'd take all day, like I want this shot and I want to be up here and I want this to happen. And they'd take all day and figure out how to make this shot happen. And that's a lot of what we did. It's like, sometimes we needed five crew people, but it was the two of us and I'm on camera. How do we do this? And so we'd sit around trying to invent magic tricks to, you know, how can she operate sound, rack focus, and then control a prop all at the same time. And we figured it out through fishing line and trickery and split screens and various things so mothers of invention what yeah, was I was say, mothers of invention that's what carl oh, yes. said yes. you know yes, very and nice. uh yes. i think it's really good that you're so resourceful but you have the background well uh, gail is very professionally shot so i wouldn't know that that you didn't weren't 
weren't an expert behind the camera because I do you. know you guys do a lot of commercial work because that's how you make a living. Yes. Because you yeah. can't just do art stuff all the time. Wouldn't it and be nice stuff, if we could? It would be nice. You know, I told somebody yesterday at Sundance, I was looking because I applied for credentials to do online because Park City is very expensive to, you know, go to myself. And I said, I wish I could uh, if I win the Powerball today. <laughs> and, you know, and they were laughing. They were cracking up at me. You know, they said, go, you know lottery or whatever because truly you can't you you can't uh economics and commercialness just rules your life when you know i always say you got to pay the electric bill got to pay yeah. the electric bill so you can't just be but the fact that you guys saw it from start to finish and learned a way to do it and don't you think that you are wiser now as filmmakers oh, well yeah. yeah i mean the way i described it is you know how when you're a kid, whether it's theater or it's playing with your friends over the weekend or it's when you first started making Super 8 films, um, it's always, you know, I got a barn, you got a camera, let's make a movie this weekend. Hmm. Um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, you know, in the late 70s, having seen Star Wars, it was, oh, I just built an X-Wing model, you got a Super 8 camera, let's come over to my house this weekend. We'll rig a star field and we'll blow up this X-Wing model and see how it Bring looks. Bring your action figures. Bring exactly. your action figures. Yeah. But now, and, and this film was almost the same feeling. Like, Gail, we got a house, we got cameras. Let's make a movie. Except now we know what we're doing. And I love that we know what we're doing. Yeah. And, it, and it was such a fun collaborative too, because there was a lot of times that we would, be setting up a scene or getting into something and one of us would look at it a certain way and go what if we did this and the other would say well wouldn't it work better if we did this and so that part was really fun too that we we're both able to kind of come to it from different directions and Lynn to your point about it looking really good Wyatt's been doing the editing on this so I kind of was removed for the past couple of months so we'd sit down and we would watch cuts of it and I just I'm watching it and I'm like Dang, this looks really good. Yes, I feel like, wow. I'm patting myself on I, the back. I don't know who shot this. She's a genius. <laughs> well, you know how to light, because you know, because we've been on panels, we have judged the St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase together for many years. And uh, we know about the lighting and sound issues in many amateur films. But you have professional cred. You you did Shadowland with mm -hmm. a cast of thousands. <laughs> Hundreds anyway. Yeah. 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 And then uh, and also for Color Eulogy, yes. which was pretty heavy, intense with the theater community. Yes. So, yeah. you, you know, not well, too and, and look at that. Look at that on a sliding scale. Shadowland had about a $250,000 budget. Four Color Eulogy had like a $15,000 budget. And have we broke 1500? I, I think Dark at the Top of the Stairs has a budget all totaled of about 1500. Um, and at some point, we need to tell you the story. I don't know if you have other questions you'd prefer to ask, but we have to tell you the story about. The film within the film. There's the okay. TV show. Okay. So when we conceived of Dark at the Top of the Stairs, one of the gags was he kept going back to the television, my character, and he'd flip on the television and there'd be this old black and white anthology show from the 60s. Like a Twilight Zone kind of a movie. Yeah. 
Well, there was a show that had entered the public domain. I don't really want to say the title of the show because I don't want to piss anybody off. But there was a show. And that no one else will, can use it that way. Say what? And then no one else can use it either. <laughs> so this show had entered the public domain and we developed the script and wrote it around this one show that had gone into the public domain. And it was obscure enough that I thought we could use it and it would work. So we planned these scenes and shot these scenes with me reacting to the television as if this other show was on the TV. Well, in the intervening two years from when we wrote the script to when we were getting into the editing, that show, like a, a big studio, had found and purchased original masters, had HD transferred everything, remastered everything, and enough had changed that they were able to re-copyright it all and, and had the broadcast rights. So suddenly, we had the need for three or four scenes in the film to have an old black and white TV show that we no longer had the rights to. So we could have gotten the rights, but it would have been what ten thousand dollars for the twenty seconds that we needed. They wanted yeah, to charge us ten thousand dollars for about thirty seconds of clip. Six times and, your budget, yes. exactly. And I honestly don't think that's a horrible amount of money. Like if you're working on Avengers Endgame, you go, oh, ten thousand dollars for a thirty second clip. That's here, lunch. you have a clip. You have a clip. I'll take five. Oh, and you here, you have a clip too. Um, so very late in the game, and when I say late in the game, I mean this past summer, we suddenly realized we need a black and white TV show. So we started writing up scenes and we knew actors and, and we knew things and we thought we can shoot these scenes and we can drop them into the film. Well, by the time you end up writing half a dozen scenes and you've got you know six or seven minutes worth of material, it's like, well, why don't we just write the whole story and shoot the whole thing? So we ended up, um, shooting about a 13 minute long short black film. and white short film that was done square four by three format in the black and white style of the old shows. And that is actually going to show before we screen the movie at the high point. So you're going to get to see the whole black and white short film and then get to see the movie, which I think will be fun for the audience because then they'll see the little black and white scenes in the movie and they'll be like, I know what TV show that is. I just watched <laughs> that. that yeah. Well, that's fun. That's when fun. We started filming that in August. Like that was yeah. a quick turnaround on that one. We we were, we started planning it in May, but just due to scheduling and and finding locations. See, here's this is fascinating because we do a whole feature film. Me and her, total control. Maybe we spend seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Then when we do a short film outside of the house, and now we're dependent on locations, other actors. Fuel for old cars. The old car itself. The old car itself. Insurance. Suddenly we spend as much money making a 13-minute short film as we spent making an 87-minute feature. <laughs> so that was that was really interesting. And because when, when it's me and her in this house, there's flexibility. When you're barreling down the hallway towards a shooting date at a location... And it's like, you got from eight o'clock until midnight next Tuesday to shoot in that diner and then get out. I was like, well, that piece of equipment's not available. Well, better buy a new one. And oh, that guy isn't available. Well, better get this guy. And oh, he needs some money. Okay, better pay him. And yeah, so all of a sudden you get out the money hose and you have to start. And $750 to make a 13 minute It's not a money film, hose. That's but... not a, 
But compared to the feature and how little we did the feature for, yeah, the, going into the short film just got nutty. And then we were Dollar shooting on an old dark forested road in Chesterfield in the middle of the night. And we're a low budget production company lighting up a street in Chesterfield. So we're buying, you know, big LED shop lights and putting them on light stands up. We're walking to the neighbor's houses and asking if we can plug into the neighbor's houses. But <laughs> we did it. We we did it. We pulled it off. Um, you know, well, we're really proud of yeah. how all of it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just like uh, my son, Tim, for a student film when he was in college, he was digging up the backyard like they were burying a dead body. <laughs> and, there were, and it was nighttime and there were lights. And I'm like, what are the neighbors going to think? You're a great oh, mom for letting them do that. <laughs> we shot a fair amount of green screen work. We brought we brought Carol Jackson's old 1969 Montego up here to Alton. And we have a big flat drive yard, uh, right. driveway in the backyard. And we set up a very large green screen and pulled the Montego in front of the green screen in our driveway. And we tried to keep it down and we tried to wrap early, but we shot till about 11, 1130 on a weeknight. And I'm sure the neighbors were wondering, what are all those lights? What's that giant green screen? What are those people doing over there? And we suddenly the crew level, like, Shooting in the house, me and her. Shooting outside in Chesterfield at night and lighting up the road, we suddenly had six or eight people on the crew. Suddenly, like all the all the all the coordination, all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my god, we got to give people call time." <laughs> oh my god, what if people? We have to give everybody directions. Oh wait, we have to feed people. Oh my god. So I'm looking forward to doing a larger scale film again. But I have to say, just the pleasure of doing this project, just the fun, the sheer creativity, the getting back to basics, the youthful joy of just sheer creativity. I have to credit a filmmaker uh, for some of the inspiration. There's a filmmaker, David F. Sandberg. And David F. Sandberg did... Um, I want to say he did Annabelle, and I want to... He, yeah. did, he did the two Shazam films... And he, he's done some really neat internet short films. And during COVID, he was doing some of the same things. And he was posting these videos where, you know, this is a guy who's done like an $80 million studio superhero film. And then COVID hits and it's he and his wife, who's an actress, and they're in his nice apartment in LA somewhere. And it's just him and his video camera. And they're just shooting little short horror film snippets. And watching him and watching this guy who'd gone from a giant film back down to, oh, I'm just hanging out in my house making stuff. And the inventive, cool ways he was doing some of the neatest stuff. I mean, we would have done the film with or without David F. Sandberg's inspiration. But boy, he really gave me some juice. Because to see this guy who was working at that level just be like, I'm going to shoot at home with my wife. I'm going to have fun. And I was well, like, didn't he do some behind the scenes stuff too? Yes. Show you kind of the making of and how they did certain things. And he was showing us how he was doing the lighting and how they, he was creating some of the visual effects. And then you'd see the results on camera and be like, oh my God, that looks fantastic. That he knows what really he's doing. Yeah. 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 So uh, when, if people want to get tickets for opening night at uh, the high point, where did they go? If they go to cinemastlouis.org 
and click on the high point link there. You can find Dark at the Top of the Stairs on the, the Coming Soon page. It's yeah, October right. 21st 6 at 6 p.m. There will be, after the movie, there will be what I'm sure is going to be a spirited and enthusiastic Q&A. Um, and I think a lot of the cast and crew who were in the short film um, will be there as well that night. So people will be able to meet them and, and say hi. Um, but yeah, and you can get tickets from that link. And I think there's also a trailer on that yeah. link. So you can you can see a little of what we did and 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 what to expect. It's I would say the film, the film is unrated. It probably would have gotten an R for language and maybe drug use. Wyatt's which, character has a potty mouth. Wyatt's character has a potty mouth. He he smokes a little pot, but there's no nudity. There you go. No Rated gore. R. Um it's a little scary. Other than that, I would say it's a little scary. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's the well, Saturday before Halloween. So, yes. well, yes. two Saturdays. Well, yeah, shh, don't. Yeah, shh. yeah. We'll, we'll trick people because Halloween's right. on Tuesday this year. That's oh, yeah, yeah. So, so dumb. It's the Saturday before Halloween weekend. I yeah. want to yeah. thank um, Cinema St. Louis, of course, because now that they have the high point, that's very much a. You know, this film was initially thought of as maybe being in the St. Louis International Film Festival. Um, and Chris had talked to me about it, but the St. Louis International Film Festival is getting way scaled down this year. They're showing half the number of films that they have in the past. They're just trying to make it a little more, you know, a, a little more under control. So ultimately this film kind of got booted out of Sliff because they have a lot of other bigger international films to show. But then Chris said and made the point that, hey, Cinema St. Louis owns a theater. We own the high point. <laughs> And he said, if you don't screen at Sliff, we'll work something out. So literally in the same phone call when Chris said, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not going to be in Sliff. However, how would you like to screen at the high point? And I can't, you know, stress the importance enough of Cinema St. Louis's commitment to local filmmakers, indie oh, yeah. filmmakers, supporting the arts, taking a chance, because I think we're the first local indie filmmakers to actually do a screening, an official screening. This is not a benefit screening. This is not a fundraiser. We're actually booked to play a night at the high point. We're splitting the box office. It's a legitimate screening. And then I know other filmmakers are following. As, as not part of a festival. As not Correct. part of a festival, exactly. Yeah. And we're, well, we're incredibly proud of that. We're very, and we're very thankful to Cinema St. Louis. Do you so. think uh, you will enter it in the St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase? You know, um, that I, would be a call on Chris's part. Because, because ideally by then, which is next summer, we'll have streaming already going. Oh, yeah. sure. So, I'd be afraid. I get that, it. Sure. Yeah, I'd be afraid that the audience would have already been worn out a little bit by then. And I and I don't know how much Bob, if Chris comes to me and says or comes to us and says, hey, we'd like to screen it again. Great. Um, I, I just, I have a feeling we're going to get a, a big audience that, that night of October 21st. And then you kind of have diminishing returns from there locally until you start streaming. But yeah, I agree with Gail. I think that hopefully by the showcase next year, um, we're, uh, we're online, we're online and streaming and with a total budget of $1,500, you know, we might recoup our budget the night of the screening and then everything else else after that is gravy and then we can work on whatever film we want to do next and then we're heroes and then we're heroes <laughs> you know <laughs> and yeah, your return right, well, on investment 
is much better. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. thank you so much for joining us today. And I know you have a busy schedule because you were shooting this morning. And and uh, I really appreciate you fitting us in. And I wish you the best of luck. And I'm sure I will see you at the movies. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Carl. You're welcome. Well, next on Carl and my agenda is seeing Killers of the Flower Moon all three hours and 44 minutes of it on Thursday. So at the high this, point. Yes, at the high point. So that's what we have in store for us. So Carl and I were at Beetlejuice last night, and I know, Carl, you have things to say about it, but I would say... I really enjoyed Beetlejuice. Now, they deviated from the plot of the movie a lot. That, but that's what Abe was telling us. He's like, there are fans of the movie and there are fans of the play because I went with the 20-something last night and she's like, I saw that movie a long time ago and I don't remember all the plot points that you're all nitpicky about. And I said, well, that's why there are fans of the play. So, boom. Yeah, I know. I know. I was surprised at how knowledgeable the audience was already. And that's why I asked our our now buddy, Abe Goldfarb, who we interviewed last week, who plays Otho and four other characters. I said, um, are there uh, fans that follow you? He said, oh, yes, we have groupies. And you could tell how they anticipated things, how they applauded things, how they knew things. Yep. And then there were some people in outfits. Yes, there were people dressed up. So it's become a cult classic. Yeah, it was good. And it's uh, it's some of the language is a little salty for some older people. Uh, I was not salty. I thought it was good. I thought it was I thought it was well done. I thought it was some of the songs are really strong. The, the opening 10 minutes is really good. And then there is one song I just hated. I just hated the song called Dead Mom. I just thought that took it out. And I'm like, ooh, you you're you're trying to get this tone because it, it is a show about death. You got this tone of the dead mom song just doesn't fit in the semi-humorous tone that they're talking about death because it's semi-serious but also it's called dead mom i i just that's the only song i didn't care for i did think some of the uh some of the songs got repetitive i my favorite character in the movie it, uh, returns for the play the shrunken head dude yeah that's funny and that is very funny but the first 10 minutes like you said it leans in to the death seat mm -hmm. with a a quite with a cheeky wit. Uh, it reminded me of Monty Python's spam a lot. Always look on the bright side of life uh -huh. when you're having fun as you can't with death and the lyrics to the first, first of all, the guy playing uh, Beetlejuice, Jacob or Colette, what's his name? I have the program. Uh, he's well, he's he, quite a force of nature. He played the Jack Black role in School of Rock, just like the guy who originated this on Broadway was another Jack Black in School of Rock. So Alex it seems you, have, you have to be a School of Rock uh, Jack Black imitator to be a Be Michael Keaton Beetlejuice imitator. 
His name is Justin Collette. He also played, besides playing a Dewey Finn in School of Rock on Broadway, he played Lonnie in Rock of Ages. Ah. So those fit, you know, but he's quite, he's he's a master improv dude because the audience, uh, he Two people back. screamed out at the theater last night. It was weird. And he came back, he, he came back with a good comeback. He did. But don't do that. Don't, don't yell at the theater to the people on stage. It's not cool. Now, the girl playing Lydia, Isabella Eisler, she she's right is out make, of high school. She's making her professional theater debut. You wouldn't know it. No, you wouldn't know it. She has a very really good. strong voice. It's it is unfortunate. I did dock her some points for singing the worst song in the musical, but I you would not know that this is her debut on stage. Right. Well, it's a very seasoned cast, and they sure have fun with it. It's very exaggerated. It's very colorful. The tech work is remarkable. The sound mm-hmm. and the design and the, the lighting. Visuals. The lighting. The, I, I'm gonna check. I haven't had time yet. I was wearing my news hat this morning. I was, uh, I want to check if it won the Tony for lighting because that lighting was incredible. So if you want to have fun, it's, it's just one of those goofy things that we're surprised. I forgot that it kicked off the Fox's season and there was a big announcement yesterday. Variety broke that shuck is going to be on tour in 2024 and it's coming to St. Louis. So I assume it's going to be at the Fox because we have two local producers of that smash hit musical. Right. Uh, It did not win any Tonys. Well, it won for best actor. Uh, It, it was nominated for best actor. Well, the guy, the uh, not, uh, well, the J Harrison G won for some like it hot. But oh, okay, all right. The other guy, Alex Newell, or well, they Alex, Alex Brightman. Newell is the they. He won a Tony. Ah, uh, okay. But the the show itself did not win any. No, no, they were the first two non-binary uh, right. people to ever win Tonys. But anyway, Shucked is hilarious, hilarious. Everybody I know that's seen it just says they laugh from start to finish so that will be so next time we have john o'brien on we'll have to talk to him about that because he must have helped broker that deal yeah and so anyway carl we haven't had any time to see movies i have the burial in my queue well i'm going to see i I think i'm going to go see uh taylor swift era's tour on saturday morning before the opening puck drop of your St. Louis Blues home opener on Saturday night. Oh, I thought it was Thursday. Thursday, they're playing in Dallas. So the home opener is on Saturday. The season opener is on Thursday in Dallas. But Saturday... Oh, go ahead. No, so Saturday morning, I'm going to try to catch Era's, the Taylor Swift movie, before I head down to the rink. Aha. Well, uh... Are you going to have a horn test? Oh, yeah, there'll be a horn test on Saturday afternoon. Don't you worry, Lynn. And I'm actually going to be there tonight for SZA. So I'm going to be there. I'll be all over it. All right. Well, listen, we'll talk movies next week. 
will have seen yes. more. <laughs> we will have seen at least two. Well, technically, one movie that's three hours and 45 minutes and then something else. Lynn, well, where can I, we find you socially? I'm on all the socials. I'm getting better at Instagram, FYI. I am on KTRS Friday mornings with Jennifer and Wendy, 11.08 a.m. I'm in the Webster Kirkwood Times. I have an article about the 10th anniversary of the Gateway Center for the Performing Arts this week. Mm -hmm. I... um am in the Belleville News Democrat, and I have lots of exciting news for that. Our guy on Survivor, Nicholas Alsup, is still on tonight's mm. episode number three, so we'll see. And um, I, uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I am on Instagram, Threads, and Twitter, X, at underscore Carl the intern you can hear me Monday through Friday on the Mark Cox Morning Show on 97.1 FM Talk and on the weekends Second Amendment Radio and The Great Outdoors on 97.1 and KMOX Lynn let's go blues let's go blues LGBT